me and for the opportunity to bring and share the word to you. Uh, I want to thank Pastor Dan for the vote of confidence so that I can be here with you. And it is a privilege to be able to share the word with you. And I would ask you to please open your Bibles to the Gospel of John uh, in chapter 1. We will be reading verses 1 through 18. And our focus will be on the last three verses, 16 through 18. But the 18 verses form a complete literary unit, a prologue in John's gospel, and will provide context. I'll be reading from the New American Standard Bible. And we'll uh, we'll read John chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. And the Word of God says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him, and apart from Him nothing came into being that has come into being. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. There came a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light, so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. There was the true light which, coming into the world, enlightens every man. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw His glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified about Him and cried out, saying, This was He of whom I said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for He existed before me. For of His fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before You asking for your help, knowing that we need you so that we can understand the precious truths that we find in your word. Lord, what a wondrous mystery and blessing to know you through our Lord Jesus Christ and to be indwelled by your Holy Spirit. And I ask, Lord, that you would open our hearts, our minds, our eyes, our ears, Lord, to all the glorious things that we find in this passage and that we'll we'll be spending some time in learning from it. Lord, may you be our teacher. Lord, uh, I also uh, pray, as it was prayed earlier, for Pastor Dan to be recovered completely so that he can be again in this pulpit soon. And I thank you for the opportunity that you give me to share your word, Lord, and May I speak words of truth, words that come from you, Lord, and whatever is not from you, that it would be discarded, but may we all be in awe of who you are and the great grace and mercy that you've given us in Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. So in this fallen world in which we live, we are used to scarcity and want, When we are young, we may tend to think that there's always a a solution to uh, our problems, 
you know, if we need money, we go and break our piggy bank, or we go to the big building bank, we swipe our cards that always have resources there, or whatever is necessary, we, we think there is a way to always have what we need. If we get sick, then we go to the doctor and they'll always figure out a way to help us, or we take a medicine and, and that will help us too. And especially we expect that medicine to be, to, to be yummy and tasty, you know, and I, I personally like cherry flavor. So, you know, we, we have these expectations about life when we are young and as we grow older, we start realizing that uh, things don't quite work that way. There are lack of resources and there are things that we just cannot have more of that even if we need them. And so we, go, we become used to disappointment at that lack of resources and we can even become cynical if we're not careful. But we realize that nothing can be renewed or replenished indefinitely. And I'm a materials engineer and in engineering school they uh, teach you the impossibility of a perpetual motion machine. Now that's a, a fancy name for something that supposedly would function forever without the need of any gas, battery, or electricity, or no energy input at all, and it just works. Uh, basically trying to get something out of nothing. And, and we know that's impossible, but you may be surprised at how many people attempt uh, these type of machines. They try to invent them, sometimes they even try to patent them, uh, but the patent office has gotten smart through the years and they say, give me a working model. You know, if you give me a working model, then, then we'll, we'll see if we can patent this. But uh, they try and they will invariably fail because we cannot create things out of nothing. Except there is one being, and one being alone who is capable of creating things out of nothing, and that is God Almighty. When we go back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, it says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then in verse 3 of that same chapter 1 in Genesis, we find God saying, let there be light. And what happens? There was light. And Psalm 33, 6 says, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their host. God is the unmatched creator. There is no one comparable to him. And even pagans who do not serve nor worship the one true God have to come up with some sort of explanation of how the world came into being. How, how did the universe begin? How are we here? How is the world sustained? And in their ignorance, they'll come up with incorrect explanations, sometimes wild explanations, but they need to come up with something they can cling to, something that explains their lives, the world around them, and give meaning to it. So that by New Testament times, the Greeks had developed the concept of logos. And that's a, a literal Greek term. And what was these logos? And for you who are you know, tech savvy, no, it's not a software. That, that came later. What was this Logos for the Greeks? Well, one commentator puts it this way. It denoted something like the soul of the universe. It was creative energy, the creative force in nature. Now, to be clear, this was the realm of, of Greek philosophers, not, not everyday people. But the concept of Logos had permeated the culture, so everyone was familiar with it at the time of the New Testament, just as today we could say that everybody is familiar with, with the concept, or at least the word, evolution, even though most of us, thankfully, do not have to know the particulars of the theory of evolution. And the reason to even bring up the Greek concept of logos is that John, who was brought up as a Jew in the worship of the one true God, he wrote his gospel in Greek, not only for Jews, but also for Gentiles. And right at the beginning of his gospel, John bridges the two worlds of Jews and Gentiles by writing in verse 1, in the beginning was the Word. 
Logos in the original Greek. In the beginning was the Logos. And what should this phrase that begins in the beginning transport us to? Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But even though we go from the Gospel of John all the way back to Genesis, we actually don't stay there. John goes back even further. Because in Genesis 1.1, there is a, a definite event that's described. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But in John 1, what is it that is described as being in the beginning? In the beginning was the word. And the verb was denotes being without a starting point. So no, no matter how far back you push in the beginning, not a creation, let's go back further and further and further, the word was already there. And what was the Greek term again that is used for word? Logos. Yes, that's right. The term with which Greeks in general were familiar. And their philosophers studied intently. Now this is not to say that John is using logos in the Greek sense. No, John is not doing that. Uh, we have to remember that the Greek concept was developed by pagan philosophers who didn't know God. So John didn't need the pagan sense. He had the Old Testament with a rich history and a strong concept for the word of the Lord. We read or alluded to Genesis 1-3. Then God said, let there be light. And there was light. We also read Psalm 33-6. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. And by the breath of his mouth, all their host. So John did not need the Greeks to talk about the word, but he chose a term that would speak to the Greco-Roman world and correct their inadequate understanding of Logos, be it a philosopher or a layperson. So John is speaking both to the Jew and to the Greek. John 1.1 tells us even more information about the Logos because he tells us that the Word was with God. The Word was with God. Somehow separate from God, but in intimate fellowship and communion with God. That's what the with means. Intimate fellowship and communion with God, and that from eternity past. And then in the final part of verse 1, John shocks us all. He shocks Jew and Gentile by declaring that the Word was God. The Word was God. That's an unequivocal statement. The Word was God. To the dismay and the refutation of all false sects and religions, including Jehovah's Witnesses, John does not say that the word was a God, one of many exalted ones. No. He does not write the word was almost God or a little less than God. No. John writes the word was God. In eternal fellowship with God, yet God himself. And John reinforces these themes in, in the verses that follow, verses 2 to 4. He says, he was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Then as we continue reading in the prologue, John introduces the testimony of another John called the Baptist. He talks about the rejection of the word by some, the, re the reception of the word by others, and the great blessings that accompany that reception. And if John's readers had not been shocked enough with what he had already said, he then writes in verse 14, and the word became flesh 
And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw his glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. That word, which in the beginning already was, who was with God and who was God, became flesh and dwelt among us. The eternal word took on a human nature and lived in the same world in which you and I live. He lived in real places, variously called Galilee, Judah, Nazareth, Capernaum, Jerusalem. He walked village streets just like you and I might do. He ate physical food like you and I certainly do. He slept like you and I do. And yet for all the similarities that we could think of, the word made flesh was no ordinary man. The disciples who talked and walked with the word saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. And because of the word's unique nature and his unique relationship to God the Father, he is glorious. And he is the embodiment of grace and truth. The word, according to John, is highly exalted. Everyone will bow to him. There is no lack with the word. His resources are infinite. He is full of grace. He bestows unmerited favor to all those who come to him because that is his character. That is who he is. His goodness is unfathomable. The word is full of truth. There is no lie, guile, shadow, or confusion in him. We can say of the word personally what Psalm 119 verse 105 says in relation to God's words. He is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. And after mentioning once more the testimony of John the Baptist in verse 14 of his prologue, we arrive at the section we want to dwell on today, verses 16 through 18. So what we've said so far serves as an introduction to our verses. Uh, but, you know, no need to fret, no need to worry. The, the length of the introduction doesn't necessarily mean that we're going to take as much time on each verse. But we will look at them uh, deeply. A firm grasp of what John has been saying up to now in his prologue will help us, I hope and expect, to understand verses 16 through 18. And this morning, I want to leave you with two thoughts. Number one, the riches of Christ's grace. And number two, the riches of Christ's revelation. The riches of Christ's grace and the riches of Christ's revelation. And my goal is that you may behold the majesty and the splendor of our Lord Jesus Christ, so that you may lean on him, you may trust him, and draw from the abundant riches he supplies. Now, before we delve deep into our verses, there is something that I want to make sure that we have clear. And at this point in my, in my sermon, you could even consider it a, a, a housekeeping item, something we must have in mind before we move on. Who is the Word, according to John? If you notice, in the first 16 verses, he says the Word, the Word, the Word. But that's it. There's no name. Who is this Word? Who is this Logos John has been talking about? We know from verse 14 that the Word became flesh, and that kind of gives us a hint. But John will not leave us confused on this matter. Because in verse 17, he declares for the first time in his gospel, but in unmistakable terms, who is this word? Verse 17, for the law was given 
through Moses, grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. Who is the eternal word? Jesus Christ. Who became flesh, dwelt among us, and whose disciples saw his glory? Jesus Christ. And his name emphasizes both his humanity and his divinity. Because he is the God-man, the Messiah, the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. And in examining the riches of Christ's grace, we must realize that his riches are inexhaustible. You simply cannot put an end to the grace he bestows on his people. In verse 14, I said Christ's disciples saw his glory. But in verse 16, John expands this circle to include all believers, to include all of us. For of his fullness, we have all received. The ones who believe in Jesus, those who have been granted by the unmerited grace of God, the right to become children of God, they all receive of his fullness. And what is the fullness? The fullness of who Jesus Christ is. He is God. John has made that clear. The Apostle Paul echoes this as well in Colossians 2.9. For in him, that is Christ, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Paul emphasizes, as John does, both the humanity and the deity of Jesus Christ. In 1 Timothy 2.5, Paul writes, For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. It is from the fullness of this one mediator between God and man, the one in whom all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form that we have all received. Each and every one of us here who have surrendered our lives to the mercy and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, we are all partakers of this fullness. With that in mind, we shouldn't wonder that Jesus tells his disciples later in the Gospel of John, in chapter 14, verse 13, whatever you ask in my name, that will I do so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. And if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. We receive from the fullness of the Son of God so that we can ask anything, and it means anything, and He will do it. Now you might be tempted to say, I like this, ask me anything and I will do it. So if I, I, like, I like this preacher. But what are the requirements for legitimate requests that can claim this promise? That you ask in his name, that is according to his character, and that you ask for the glory of God. 99% of petitions, disqualified. If not 100%. But do you realize that there is fullness in Jesus and that we all partake of that fullness and we have received that fullness? Do you live day by day knowing that you can ask anything in Jesus' name to the glory of God and He will give it to you? Remember, He's full of grace and truth. There is no lie in Him. If you ask anything in his name for the glory of God, he will give it to you. But if there's still hesitation on your part to believe this, then let what John describes at the end of verse 16 sink in. Christ's riches are described as grace 
upon grace. Grace upon grace. The thought is so sublime as to be almost indescribable. Grace added to grace. If you could somehow add something to the grace of God, some sort of grace plus, you will only find it in Christ Jesus. God gives you of his grace, and if we could even entertain the thought that his grace would be found to be lacking, you go to Jesus and you find more grace. God showering his favor over you time and time again because of your union with Christ. There's no illustration that can do justice to the superabundance of God's grace, but I think it can be helpful to to think in terms of, of a family with children and the love that is expressed within that household. What is the expected attitude when the family knows there's a new, a new arrival, a new child that will come into this family? Well, there, there's joy. There's gladness. Now, let me ask you, is the love and the care for the other members of the family diminished because there's a new addition? No. There is enough love for all parents and siblings. Now, where did the extra love come from? There's another member Where does the extra love come from? Well, if you can explain it, you can get an idea of what it means for the riches of God's grace to be inexhaustible. They just, it just won't end. And there may be someone here who's going through a situation that's uh, particularly difficult, but I want to tell you that the grace of God is there for you, and it will sustain you. You may be afraid that that if if one more thing comes upon you, you will not be able to bear it. But I want to say to you that God's grace is there for you, and God's grace will sustain you. In 2 Corinthians 12, verse 8, the Apostle Paul implored the Lord three times that a thorn in the flesh would leave him. And what was God's answer? My grace is sufficient for you. My grace is sufficient for you. And that was not a cold reply on the part of our Lord. It was a statement of absolute truth and reality. God's grace is sufficient. And Paul understood this. He goes on to say in in verse 9 of that, the 12th chapter of 2 Corinthians, most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. The apostle was content to receive of the fullness of Christ's riches, and he experienced grace upon grace. The name of Jesus is full of grace and truth, And of that fullness, we have all received. But maybe you are not going through a particularly difficult situation in your life. But you may be battling sin that often can seem overwhelming, like it's it's conquering us. Even though we've been transformed by God, we still sin. So we need God's grace daily. So Ask the Lord continually for victory over sin, knowing that he is pleased with that request. In Titus chapter 2, verse 11, Paul writes, basically personifying the grace of God in Christ, when he says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us, to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us 
to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. Zealous for good deeds. Now, Titus 2.14 says that the Lord Jesus gave gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed. So we as believers are not known for lawlessness, but as a people who cherish the law of God and understand what the proper role and aim of the law is. Back in John chapter 1, verse 17, he tells us, For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. The law prepared us for the reality, the fulfillment, and the experience of God's grace and truth in Jesus. And we have somewhat of an illustration in the Olympics. So athletes prepare for years to showcase their ability at the main Olympic event. And these athletes, when they get to the Olympics and they are at prime time, where everybody's watching, sometimes they perform incredible feats that they had never done before during practice. And that's why what we watch on TV sometimes can be so breathtaking. Because they practice hard to get to that point, and they're not going to substitute the main event for the training. But neither do they say that the training is of no use. They don't say that the effort is a waste of time. Now, if, if we untrained novices attempted what these athletes do, what do you think would happen? Well, a massive hospital bill, that's what would happen. In my case, you know, I, w- I would not win a gold medal. I think I'd have to beg for gold to pay for all the metal in my bones. Because preparation and training are necessary. So we can say in a similar way that the law of God prepares us for the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world as John the Baptist proclaims in verse 29 of John chapter 1. The Galatians were confused about the law of God and Paul wrote to correct them. So I would like you to go with me to Galatians chapter 3 so that we can see how the Apostle Paul corrected the confusion they had about the proper role and aim of the law of God. Galatians chapter 3 verse 19. And Paul writes there, Why the law then? It was added because of transgressions having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator until the seed would come to whom the promise had been made. Now a mediator is not for one party only, whereas God is only one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? May it never be. For if a law had been given which was able able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed have been based on law. But the scripture has shut up everyone under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. The law shows our just condemnation and Jesus as our only hope of salvation. The law of God is holy, righteous, good, perfect, blameless, And the people of God rejoice in its knowledge. But the law by itself cannot save you from your sins. 
It cannot transform you from a sinner to a saint. It cannot give you a heart of flesh instead of a heart of stone. The law cannot transfer you from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. It cannot deliver you from the domain and the rule of the devil and make you a citizen of God's kingdom. The law given through Moses in all its radiant beauty showed how corrupt we were, how sinful and wretched we were in our natural fallen state. But Jesus Christ has come. The Word became flesh, and with Him, grace and truth were realized. Jesus now saves, justifies, transforms, delivers, adopts, sanctifies, and one day will glorify us. The law accomplished what God intended it to do, and Jesus Christ accomplishes what only He can do. There is no one like Him. The author of Hebrews compared Jesus to Moses in in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 3. He has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses by just so much as the builder of the house has more honor than the house. And by the way, I saw in your bulletin that there is a man's study on Hebrews chapter 3. And so if you, if you have time available, you need, you need to be there because Hebrews chapter 3 is a great chapter. But please turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 3 to see more of how the Apostle Paul explains this relationship between the law and Jesus. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, beginning in verse 7. Second Corinthians 3, 7. But if the ministry of death in letters engraved on stones came with glory so that the sons of Israel could not look intently at the face of Moses because of the glory of his face fading as it was, how will the ministry of the Spirit fail to be even more with glory? For if the ministry of condemnation has glory, much more does the ministry of righteousness abound in glory. For indeed what had glory in this case has no glory, because of the glory that surpasses it. For if that which fades away was with glory, much more that which remains is in glory. Therefore, having such a hope, we use great boldness in our speech and are not like Moses, who used to put a veil over his face so that the sons of Israel would not not look intently at the end of what was fading away. But their minds were hardened, for until this very day, at the reading of the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because it is removed in Christ. But to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their heart. But whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty." But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. The glory of the Lord Jesus surpasses all other glories. And by His grace, we who are His are being transformed into His image. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. His riches are never exhausted. And we can confidently claim what Hebrews 4.16 says, Therefore let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Not only are the riches of Christ's grace unlimited, 
so are the riches of Christ's revelation. At the end of his prologue, in verse 18, John writes, No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. And each portion of this verse is astounding. We learn that no one has seen God at any time. And you may go, well, wait a minute. Uh, What about those instances in in the Old Testament where people, quote-unquote, saw God? Moses and the elders of Israel in Exodus 24. Moses again in Exodus 33. Isaiah in chapter 6 of his book. We could think of others. But those passages themselves explain or hint at the incompleteness of such visions of God. Select people in the Old Testament got to see an aspect of God's glory, but not the essence of his being. And if we were to have any doubts about it, John clarifies it here in verse 18. No one has seen God at any time. And Paul echoes this in the doxology that he writes in 1 Timothy 6.16, where speaking of God says, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. What a predicament we human beings find ourselves in. If we can't see God, if the difference in our condition when comparing sinful man and holy God is such that he is unapproachable and we are damnable, what hope is there for us? There is one and only one hope for mankind. Verse 18 says, the only begotten God in the New American Standard, who is in the bosom of the Father. We could also put it a different way. We could say the only Son who is God has intimate fellowship with God the Father. Other translations render only begotten as the one and only, emphasizing the unique relationship between Father and Son. In the bosom of the Father could also be translated at the Father's side, in closest relationship with the Father, close to the Father's heart, near to the Father's heart. We will not find a closer, more loving, dear, and intimate relationship than that between God the Father and God the Son. And as glorious as that is, In and of itself, the beautiful relationship that exists within the triune God, there is an incredible and tangible benefit to us who know him. Verse 18 ends by saying, he has explained him. Meaning, the Son, God the Son, has explained God the Father to us. We who have received of the word's fullness, we who are the recipients of grace upon grace, we who have experienced the realization of grace and truth, we have an interpreter of the Father in Jesus Christ. The word that's translated, explained in the New American Standard in the original Greek is related to the English term exegesis, which we use to talk about the interpretation of biblical texts. So we say we understand what the Bible says if we do proper exegesis, if we interpret the passages correctly. 
Well, John 1.18 is telling us that to understand God, to see God finally and fully, we do it through Jesus Christ. He has explained Him. Jesus is the ultimate interpreter, explainer, revealer of the Father to us. As Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, For God who said, light shall, shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. To give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Do you want to know God? Turn to Jesus. Do you want to understand the ways of God? Look to Jesus. Do you want to see God? Behold the Lord Jesus as revealed in Scripture. And let this be clear to all. There is no knowledge of God apart from Jesus Christ. There is no knowledge of God apart from Jesus Christ. And just as that is true, we must also be clear that all the knowledge of God we can ever have, we will have in Jesus Christ. All the knowledge that we, were, we would be ever capable of having of God, we will have in Jesus Christ. Paul says in Colossians 2.2, attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery, that is, Christ himself, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Paul and John want to make sure you and I understand that the only way to God is through Jesus Christ. And Peter joins the course. He said in Acts 4.12, there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Do not leave this place without being absolutely convinced that you will only find God, you will only have fellowship with God, you will be able to enjoy unlimited blessings from God only if Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior. The apostle cries out in verse 12 of this prologue, but as many as received him, to them, to those who received him, he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. John brings the testimony of John the Baptist to bear in verse 6. There came a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. And again in verse 15, John the Baptist testified about him and cried out saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I for he existed before me. The only explainer and revealer of the one eternal, true, and living God is Jesus Christ. If you know him, you know God as fully as you can possibly know him. And if you don't know Jesus Christ, if you are a stranger to him, if you believe that Jesus was just a good man or a great teacher or a great moral example, then I want to tell you that you are as far from God as you can possibly be. And one day, you will be judged. And you will be condemned because you believed not the testimony of God concerning 
his son. In the Gospel of John, there, there is a famous passage. John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send the son into the world to judge the world but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. There is only one person capable of revealing God to us and his name is Jesus Christ. To trust in him is to open the floodgates of God's grace and to be the recipient of God's fullness, sufficient for every need. To know Jesus Christ is to know God. So let us come to Jesus and let's abide in Him. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we, we want to confess with the Apostle John, with the Apostle Paul, that, Father, you, you dwell in an approachable light. No man has seen or can see. Oh, Lord, but what a glorious truth and reality that the Word became flesh. That the only begotten God, the only Son who is God, Lord, He has explained you to us. And, Lord, and now we can know you. We can have fellowship with you. We can be the recipients of your overabundant grace and kindness and love and mercy, grace upon grace. Lord, may that reality warm our hearts, give us strength for every need, for every day, that we may battle sin and conquer it, that we may Share your word that we may bear fruit and that we may ask of you in Jesus' name and see you answer our prayers because we ask in his name and for your glory. Lord, uh, may we live our days fully for you until you call us home. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.